0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. This is Austin, your host for the ad space today. And if this is your first time tuning in, we appreciate you being here. Welcome uh, to Fieldcraft Podcast, and welcome to the community of preparedness. And we appreciate you coming to us for your preparedness needs. Um, And I'm going to talk to you guys today about what makes this content free for all of you to listen to. And our first sponsor, uh, a sponsor we're very proud to have, is Black Rifle Coffee Company. Uh, all the guys and gals over at black rifle have been awesome to work with. Really enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's turned into some awesome friendships and it really started because Mike and Evan's friendship, um, goes way back into their time in the service. And, uh, it's now beautifully blossomed into this awesome business relationship that we have. And we're really excited to be partnering up and we're gonna be bringing you guys all kinds of really cool, fun content. So really excited to be doing that. But, um, more importantly, they switched me on to coffee. Now I get to fit in with everybody else. I, I've never been really been a, a, a coffee person until now. So uh, they worked hard, found me something I really liked and I, uh, I enjoy that now. So I can, I can be one of you guys now, but head over to blackriflecoffee.com and use the coupon code that we have for you now craft 15 and it'll save you 15% off a purchase on that website. So head over to blackriflecoffee.com and it will even help you with that 15% on your first club order from the coffee club. Uh, Pretty awesome where they'll send you uh, coffee every month on whatever amount that you want, whatever blend that you want. If you want beans or if you want it already ground up for you, they got you. So go over to blackriflecoffee.com, use code CRAFT15. Next up is our friends over at KC Highlights. So uh, if you got a boat, if you got an ATV, you got a dirt bike, and obviously if you have a car, KC Highlights have the best lights in the industry, and can hook you the heck up. Um, I just bought a new rig. I'm not going to spoil what it's going to be. It's not as awesome as it might, as maybe I'm even hyping it up to be. But I'm excited because I know um, I'm going to be putting on those nice new Flexera 4s. And then after we just hung out with them at Overland Expo not so long ago, uh, they got some great stuff coming out uh, in the very near future. So guys, stay tuned for all that. But if you want the best lights in the industry, head over to CaseyHighlights.com use our code fieldcraft and it'll save you 10%. That's kchighlights.com, code fieldcraft to save yourself 10% on your next purchase. Next up is our friends at Triarc Systems. If you're not familiar with who Triarc Systems are, they make the premier weapon system on planet Earth. Guys, their stuff is top-notch. Chris Reeves uh, and his gang over there have always been great friends of ours first and foremost, but have always supported the mission here at Fieldcraft Survival and we've always appreciated them so much that they came out to our grand opening. Uh, gosh, it's been a year now, which is incredible, but came out a year ago and supported us all the way up from Arizona, and they've always been there in our corner, and so um, we're proud to have them as a sponsor for our podcast, and guys, if you need the best, which you do, if you need the best weapon system on the planet, head over to TriarchSystems.com, use code FIELDCRAFT, and it'll save you 5% on a build with Triarch Systems, so that is
1: TriarchSystems.com, code FIELDCRAFT Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Guys, I am your host this time around. I'm Kevin Estella. I'm the Director of Training here at Fieldcraft Survival. And as always, I try to bring on interesting guests, folks who you may at first say, well, I'm not sure how they necessarily fit into the grand scheme of everything that Fieldcraft Survival stands for. But I think after you hear this guest and you hear what she has to present, you'll see how it can tie into concepts of sustainability, concepts of homesteading, concepts of awareness of uh, life-sustaining things that we need. So without further ado, I want to present a very interesting MythBuster, storm chaser, and someone who goes by Inspector Planet, and that is Dr. Tracy Finara. Tracy, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. How are you?
2: Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here.
1: Oh yeah, it's. It, we are honored to have you because I think you might. Well, actually, you are my first PhD that I've interviewed here. I don't recall if we've had any on our podcast before. We have had some very intelligent, you know, very well spoken uh, subject matter experts, um, but. In but terms no of no one
2: that really wanted to put themselves <laughs> through hell for 10 years.
1: We're we're gonna get to that. Don't jump the gun here. Um we might we might we might as well start off with how many times do you get mistaken for a medical doctor instead of a doctor of philosophy?
2: Uh that's a great question because I usually lead with you know, if someone calls me doctor, or introduces me, I was like, yes, but I cannot save your life. Um, so just to, like I throw it out They're more surprised that I have a PhD at all. Um, not that I don't I don't speak well or, you know, anything like that. Just, you know, I think that people get stereotyped and I, and I have long blonde hair and, you know, I'm, I'm a female and uh, and I'm kind of mainstream. Uh, so I think that people are just surprised in general,
1: you know, you say you don't have anything to save a life, but I mean, it sounds like your career and your mission, your life goal, I mean, is working on sustainability, which is, I think it was on your Instagram page. You had something that said, you know, uh, prolonging life on earth. So even though you might not be talking about the individual or something in a case of trauma, you are certainly working on that in another way, shape or form. But, you know, yeah, I ahead. love
2: that you said that because you know, everything is a system, right? If you look at the human body at, at the microbial ecology, if you look at the universe, it's all these systems that kind of mimic each other. So in a way, maybe I am a medical doctor, <laughs>
1: <laughs> a, gl- a global doctor. Um, <laughs> right <laughs> now, let, let's talk about that PhD process because uh, recently I had on a former student of mine who's currently a senior at the U.S. Air Force, and you know I think it's interesting for people to hear about the various paths that professionals have taken in their lifetime. Now, your dissertation um, to uh, to become the PhD was on hydrological movement, right?
2: Yeah, it was uh, basically I was in land development for a few years and I saw how we were mismanaging our land. And I realized how important stormwater was, something that my environmental engineering degree in undergraduate school didn't really expose me to. Um, And I and I just I needed to do something to to make a difference. So so I went back to school and my master's was focused on uh, pollutant transport where I storm chased to to see how this new uh, technology or, or filter media could remove uh, metals and nutrients from stormwater runoff. And then uh, for my PhD, I designed that based on my, my experience in land development. So uh, I did a watershed scale retrofit. I wanted to see if we can implement uh, engineering technologies that can make it look hydrologically like nothing is built on the surface. Uh, And, and in fact, with, with putting things in like rain gardens and cisterns and green roofs, really disconnecting our impervious surface or anything that rain can penetrate through by disconnecting that we can get up to 90% in, well, in the watershed that I was studying.
1: And I, and I think studying water, it might seem to a lot of people like, well, what's the importance of that? But I mean, if you watch any survival shows or if you attend any of our courses, we always talk about how water is life. And yet, you know, people don't understand how how fragile the water system is. And we have a lot of folks who are listening who are active homesteaders. And, you know, maybe they don't have necessarily the best practices or maybe they're just learning how to manage these small community gardens that they're doing or, you know, they're their, you know, backyard uh, raised gardens or whatever they have. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of of the role of water and where water goes and where it comes from and whatnot. Um, Where do you, where, where do you feel like the average person kind of gets it wrong with like an understanding, like since you are technically a myth buster, we'll get there later. Um, (laughs) Since you are a myth buster, what are some of the common myths about the water we consume, the water that we use in our daily lives? what are some of the common myths that the average person should be aware of or maybe some of the unknown facts that that just don't get brought out right. in the limelight
2: i mean w- we don't have enough time to go through all of them because there's there's a lot And you know part of my research i asked my friends and and then the the community where they thought that their that their water went when it entered a storm sewer and 72 percent of people either didn't know or thought that it went to a wastewater treatment plant when most places in the united states and all of florida Every single drop of rain that that falls on the ground surface picks up that pollution and goes right to a natural water body and eventually into our drinking water supply. And and a lot of people don't know that we're not creating any new water. The water that was here a thousand years ago will be here a thousand years from now. So we better we better treat it right because we're going to drink that same water that we flush down the toilet. It's uh it's it's just uh, I think that. We're so disconnected because we have this miracle of turning on a faucet and having clean, safe drinking water. But that's actually not the case everywhere in the U.S. And it certainly isn't the case worldwide where unsafe drinking water is the leading killer among children. Uh, A fact that really started me on my path towards sustainability and environment. Um, So so there's... (laughs) There's just so many myths when it comes to water. People look out, like look at a globe, and they're like, "Well, 70% of the Earth is covered in water. We don't have a water shortage." But the truth is, our accessible water is only like 0.1% our accessible drinkable water. Um, And and to desalinate, yeah, we have the technology to to turn salt water into drinking water, but it's really expensive and really energy intensive. And at this point, it's not feasible. Um, to go to to our ocean water as a drinking water source worldwide um so there's there's so many challenges that we are just uh, oblivious to because the environmental engineers on the back end are doing all this work I always call them silent superheroes I guess i'm mm-hmm. I'm one of them because I am an environmental engineer but but those people that, Maintain clean air, uh, food, uh, soil, water. Those are the people that that are making sure that we have what we need to survive.
1: You brought up a really interesting point, and that's the idea of comfort with just being able to turn on the the faucet. I mean, my father came from the Philippines in 1965, uh, and you know he always said how one of the things that he marveled at here in the United States was that you could turn on hot water immediately and you don't have to boil it, um, and. You know, we often will tell our students a great practical real world exercise to do is to turn off the breaker in your house and try going 72 hours with no energy in your house, right? Living, living in the dark, so to speak. I love well, it. another thing that people, if they want to take it to the next level, turn off the water, right? And there are a lot of folks out there that don't realize our dependence on the water. And also they believe, you know, here in Utah, we recently had in, in one of the counties, we had a, a boil water order. Well, a lot of, people believe if you just boil water, you make it safe to drink, but there are certain yeah. chemicals that will not boil off and they will remain in that water and it will be very unsafe to drink. So right. in, in your research, I mean, what are the the chemicals that we should be looking out for? Is there anything that that really stands out from uh. when this rainwater gets picked up uh, into the gutters and it goes through the point source and out into the ocean or out into these bodies of water? Um, uh. Is there one chemical that's really like the standout, like the killer?
2: I mean, you know, you, you always hear about forever chemicals, Mm -hmm. these PFAS, you know, uh, um, Mark, Mark Ruffalo just made a movie about them.
1: It was fascinating by the way. I, I I could not stop watching that movie.
2: Right. I mean, mind blowing. It was just 2018. You think that these things are such in the past. Um, but, but we know that a lot of these chemicals, the, the nuclear waste everything like that, that, that stuff stays and maintains i mean i'm from buffalo new york and it's one of the most polluted places in america i I mean we've had 99 superfund sites uh we were part of the manhattan project Uh, i've had seven friends from high school have cancer um i mean it's just in their 30s you know it's uh these things are are real real problems and in my research you know i really focus on on nutrients and metals and things that that impact the ecosystem, Uh, proliferate algae blooms that that can be toxic. And then those toxins can get in drinking water systems. Uh, And then, you know, and then if you want to go into the wastewater side, then you have all the pharmaceuticals that we are ingesting that end up in our wastewater system um, and things that people put down their sink that they shouldn't or the, the lotions and everything, sunscreen, everything that we use that go into our wastewater uh, treatment plants that, you know, we only test for so much. We can't test for everything because those tests are really expensive and they're, they're, they take a lot of time. So a lot of these chemicals seep through, go into our natural water bodies from the wastewater treatment plant, and then get uptaken from a drinking water plant. Uh, a lot of times, you know, there's ozone or UV or something that can really break up those uh, hydrophobic change, which are which are the um, non-polar uh, chemicals. So chemicals that can't be removed by filter media and chemicals that take too long for microbes to break down or can't be broken down by microbes. Um, so so there's there's many different chemicals that you have to look for depending on your your drinking water source, but it all ends up being one water anyway.
1: The old kind of idea of collecting rainwater then, I mean, you still would have – some type of risk that you'd be, you'd be, you know, factoring into like your, your water consumption, even with just rainwater, right?
2: Yeah. A rainwater, you might be surprised, but if you take the pH of rainwater, it's, it's pretty low. It's around 4.5 in a lot of places. Um, and, and that's because think about everything that comes down with rain. One of my friends, uh, noted that there was a lot of smog. I was in LA last week and they saw a lot of smog, Um and then they're like, oh, but it rained and now it's clear. Well
1: it went somewhere. um,
2: Right. Where do you where do you think those particulates went? Um so so yeah, I mean harvesting rainwater um is a is a great idea in locations where the watershed doesn't depend on on that base flow from from rainfall. Um but places like Florida, where we get a lot of rainfall, it's, it's an absolutely excellent idea to use for irrigation um, and basically to slow the water down and let it percolate right where it falls. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for, for me personally, um, I would I would still have some kind of treatment. I would use activated carbon because you're not going to have, you know, those same chemicals that are in you know wastewater falling from the sky. Um, so that's what I would do. I would I would probably use a carbon filter. For, for that water before it touches the ground at all.
1: You know, it makes you want to just look at every single glass of water as suspect. You know, like yeah. if someone hands you a glass of water, you know, you want to ask them, but, you, did you run this through activated carbon? Now, w- with your research, I mean, you spent how many years uh, working on your, your dissertation?
2: What, many years. Um, so, So I, uh, I think that my, my master's, I was going to turn into a PhD. So Mm -hmm. it ended up taking longer than it should have three years because that was going to be a PhD. But then I realized that, you know, I really had to, had to stay true to myself. You know, a lot of times when you enter into grad school, if you're being funded, which I was, you are kind of pigeonholed into the research that your professor wants you to work on because Mm -hmm. that's what you're funded for. Um, but I was lucky enough to find outside funding and create my own PhD. And that's what uh, that's what I would always recommend for students to, to go out in the real world first, know exactly what they want to do, what their calling is, and then, you know, find their own funding so they can they can make that a reality for themselves. Um, And so that's, that's basically what I did is then, you know, look at the, the watershed scale and that took about mm, four and a half years. So, so seven years of grad school and three years of undergrad, I did the five-year program in three years, which was miserable, (laughs) Um, but it got done. I had fun in grad school instead.
1: I was going to say, Florida is not exactly known for being a, uh, a very prudish school. And I'm sure you had a, you know, plenty of you know, fellow colleagues over there that were going out when you were probably staying in or working at the library. And I'm sure that's a yeah. little bit of peer pressure, you know,
2: absolutely. I mean, I, uh, my program was number three in the country when I graduated from, from grad school. So, you know, you had the best of the best, mm-hmm. uh, surrounding you. So, so that was fine. But in undergrad, you know, I, I made sure to diversify my friends. I didn't have all science and engineering friends and my friends were in law school or business or, you know, athletics or whatever they were in. But but it was a very diverse group that went out all the time. But uh, I, I was I, I look back at myself in undergrad and I'm really proud of my ability to stay focused.
1: I wish I had the same focus. Uh, my my, the- my undergrad <laughs> was uh, filled with a, a lot of blurred memories. Um, now, quick question how How does this click? Right, like how did how did you click, or the idea click? I want to work and study water. Like, when did that happen? How does it? How does something like that even happen?
2: You know, you think back and uh, and realize that there are points in your life, just like like. Things that happen are things that you learn that really kind of lead you on your path. And for me, it was in fourth grade, a teacher told me about a hazardous waste dump site where industries were dumping toxins into waterways. And those toxins were leaching into the soil and getting into the groundwater. And then people were building houses and schools and there were birth defects and cancer clusters. And that's when I realized how everything in this world is connected. What we put into the environment eventually comes back to affect our health. And then it was it was later in life. And and I talked about this a little bit earlier when I found out that unsafe drinking water was a leading killer worldwide. That just blew my mind that we just turn on the faucet and people had to walk miles to get water that was then unsafe to drink like it just it, it made me realize my passion like I had to do something about this. Um, and then and so I heard about, you know, a career where you can provide clean water and and clean air and enough food and you can build and design things. And I was like, sign me up. I want to be a superhero. So I became (laughs) an environmental engineer. And then uh, my experience in land development and how we were mismanaging our land, putting so much concrete on the surface and really manipulating the water cycle. It just freaked me out. Um, And I would tell my clients, you know, there's a, there's a better way I can save you time and money by, by eliminating infrastructure and designing, you know, low impact development strategies. And they were just like, nah, I know how, how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. I'm just going to do it the way it's always been done. Um, So that's why I went back to school. I I had to prove that there was a better way.
1: I mean, it sounds like you're referring to like all the, the quick drainage routes for water out of like Los Angeles, like all those giant, are they culverts? I mean, what what are they technically yeah. called?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. We have historically designed systems to get rid of the water as fast as possible to, to avoid flooding. Um, anytime you put concrete on the ground, You take the water that used to infiltrate into the ground and you put it on the surface where it runs off at higher velocities, higher quantities, lower water quality and higher temperatures into our natural water bodies. Um, So. In LA, it's a little bit different because, you you know, you don't get the kind of rain that we do in Florida. So even a little bit of rain will cause a problem because you don't have that porosity of the soil. So it's basically even your green space is like concrete because that water can't infiltrate because it's been dried and pressed down for so long. So you get these flash floods. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of places in LA, I saw some storm sewers going right into the ocean. Um which you know that's how most systems are are built and i'm not against that because when when you have combined sewers then you have that sewer sewage overflow uh so there's no winning but but yes you are correct
1: yeah and all drains lead to the sea right that's what i learned in Nemo.
2: yeah it's all one water that's very true
1: Guys, we're going to interrupt the
0: podcast just a second to talk to you about our sponsor, Bespoke Post. This fall as you get back into the swing of things, Bespoke Post is here with a new seasonal lineup of the must-have Box of Awesome collection. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. Super unique Niche items, hatchets, skinning blades, uh, cologne for men, awesome stuff, niche items that you probably wouldn't find if they didn't come to you in this box. No matter what you're into, the Box of Awesome has you covered. From autumn craft beers to cozy threads and camping gear essentials, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. To get started, you just take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help pick the items that are sent to you in your boxes and then they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up, and you can skip a month or cancel at any time. Each box only costs you 45 bucks, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. Plus, each box of awesome, you're supporting small businesses around the country, which is awesome. We love that here at FuelCraft. 90% of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand. So, guys, you can get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter code fieldcraft at checkout. That's code fieldcraft at checkout. So go to boxofawesome.com, code fieldcraft for 20% off your first box.
1: Well, in your studies, I mean, I know, you know, preparing for this podcast, you know, obviously doing a little bit of Instagram stalking, making sure I'm, I'm well-versed in your background and whatnot. You picked up a, a diving license, right? Certified diver? Yeah.
2: I love diving. <laughs>
1: Now, do you have a preferred dive location?
2: Yeah, actually. Um, so I like the floor to to dive in the Florida Springs. We have probably the best cave diving in the world in northern Florida because of our aquifer system. We have a lot of limestone, which is calcium carbonate rock. Uh, basically, it's soft rock that forms caves and caverns over time with water flow. Um, so it's really cool to see the geologic history while diving um and then on top of it you have you have this this amazing ecosystem of freshwater species and and manatees come in and and turtles and it's just absolutely the the Florida cave system is amazing
1: you know there is a similar cave system in central america and i read a study one time of how they found ancient like mesoamerican pottery in these cave systems Black. and they're like This cave system the evidence showed that the water was there for longer than the pot was there meaning that someone decided and i don't know if it was sacrificial i don't know what the reason being was what the motivation was but someone actually had to swim down on a one-way ticket to leave a pot in one of these caves and i was like that is so incredibly creepy wow Right. So uh, I'm not a I, I've never done cave diving. I've I've done wreck diving and I've done night diving. Um, there's something about the cave diving that just freaks me out. And I don't know if it's the idea of like all the sediment kicking up and I know how to how to no, float should
2: ca- freak you out. It's really yeah. dangerous.
1: Yeah. Have you read Lawrence Gonzalez's Deep Survival yet? No. There's a really interesting section in Deep Survival about how there are cave divers that are found, and you may not ever want to cave dive after I tell you this. Cave divers who have been found with full tanks of air, but they they're, they're dead underwater. And Lawrence Gonzalez, who goes into the psychology of survival, explains how panic and you know kind of losing your cool. I mean, the whole book is about the concept of being cool, staying cool. How there are folks out there that are perfectly equipped to deal with whatever problem or emergency they have in front of them, but they don't know how to process it, and they end up dying. So. Right. So if you haven't read that book yet, there's a whole section on cave diving, and it's it's fascinating. It made me kind of second guess if I ever wanted to do it, and I just haven't had the opportunity to go cave diving, so I will. Yeah,
2: I mean, <laughs> and I'm going to be completely honest that it freaks me out, too, uh, getting stuck or something falling or something, you know, because we are pulling so much water from our aquifer, especially with Nestle taking so much of it. Um, so so changing our water levels can cause sinkholes and and things to change geologically. So so I haven't gone to the places that are super dangerous. And uh, the reason why I started doing it even is, is watching a documentary where is called The Water's Journey, where they were following uh, a tire that was thrown on the side of a road down a storm sewer through through the cave system and then eventually into our drinking water aquifer. Um, but it was amazing because you see the people walking on top, it's like a sunny's parking lot. And then the cave divers are underneath the ground following this tire. But at the end, it was like RIP and it, probably one of the most famous cave divers. And, and I can't recall his name right now. Um, but it was like this, this thing where it kind, kind of inspires you to live on the edge at the same time. It's like, wow, like we need to understand everything underneath us. That, to understand you know like the threats that that are natural resources that would we depend on face
1: that diver wasn't like richard kohler or, or john chatterton was it the guys that did shadow divers
2: oh maybe i don't think so though i think his name is eh. i'll think of it okay i'll think of it by the end of this podcast <laughs> All right.
1: well i mean it seems like your your work has taken you obviously from academia into the wild and at some point Someone paid attention. Someone was was noticing, and they were like, "Okay, we're going to offer you this opportunity." What was it like making the transition from academia to, you know, I'll just use use the word Hollywood loosely to television or
2: very loosely, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, after I realized that, you know, like I was saying earlier about my friends not knowing where their water goes or where it comes from or where it goes when they flush their toilet. Um, I realized how important communication was because I actually saw their behaviors change. and then I saw uh, my 11 year old niece came to my house and uh, she was worshiping Kim Kardashian and this was like 2012 around and I and I was like, why why there's got to be better role models And I'm like, why don't you follow and then I couldn't I couldn't think of a female role model that looked like her that you know that that was doing something that i would want her to use as a role model and and that's when i realized you know i have a responsibility to do more than what i'm doing nine to five so uh, i made a video of my dissertation research and that's what mythbusters found um and and to be honest i was talking to discovery on developing shows before they found me um for that show uh and uh it's really mission driven it's not it never feels like it's hollywood it always feels mm-hmm. like i'm i'm just trying to share what i know and what i learn and my passion for how the world works and to inspire other people to love the earth too
1: you know it's it's unfortunate i mean a lot of those those networks um history channel A E, um you know, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, like many of them start off with very, very good intentions. I remember as a kid years ago, I watched, you know, the the footage of animals on like the, the African safari. And I, that was like right. every single night I was watching footage of, of animals on the African safari. And then suddenly it became like, okay, we're going to do like an extreme garage or next thing you know, History Channel. And don't get me wrong, I've worked for the History Channel, love to death. Um, but I'll tell you, Everything seemed to be like, okay, well, what if we had Adolf Hitler here, Nazis there? And it was like, everything was Nazis. And I'm like, okay, there's more, right. there's more to world war two than just the Nazis. And but, if you're not
2: a white middle-aged man, you're not, uh, you're not hosting a show on history channel,
1: you know, and believe it or not, they actually were coming after me real hard for a while because they're like, yeah, we have a open um, we have an open order saying that we need to get a non-white lead and they're like, yeah, you're just enough Brown. I mean, they didn't necessarily say it that way, but I'm half Filipino. So I'm, okay. tan, I'm tan you year count. round. I count. count. That's right. Quota. So, uh, I think a lot of those networks, they start off wanting to be very informational, but after a while it kind of gets polluted. No pun intended with you as a subject expert here, but it kind of gets polluted with this idea of like, we have to be entertaining. Right. And after no. a while unscripted TV, it's like, okay how unscripted is it is it really you know right. so uh yeah
2: i mean the same thing happens to politicians right i think that everybody has good intentions going in and then and then they have to try to uh, get the masses on board and that's when things start to change and shift and and what i really like that weather channel does mm-hmm. um because you know they're the only network I think that that gained viewers in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, they they stick to the science, and yeah, they do some of this, some of this you know stuff to just bring people in. But the stuff that they're doing, you know, I do one of their shows called Weird Earth. Where it's like YouTube videos of these crazy things, and then experts take a journey on what it could be. And you know, five, four out of five of the of the hypotheses are wrong, but we're teaching them w- about those hypotheses in the in the making. So it basically it tricks the viewer into learning, and and MythBusters does that too. MythBuster did did a great job of doing that, and and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that just as long as it's, you know, there's a line that that you're still being informational and inclusive and, you know, increasing scientific literacy of the general public to you're just purely entertaining and just feeding the ignorance that (laughs) that we have in our country.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm totally fine with a, a term that one of my late professors coined called infotainment. As long as right. you have full disclosure before the fact, like, look, here's you know Mythbusters. You have two hosts and a, and a series of co-hosts. And you're going to have fun with this. They're going to they're going to have a blast. They're going to joke around and you know that they're going to joke around and they're going to have, you know, funny little doodles and, you know, some antics here and there and some creative editing. But uh, what I have a pet peeve of is when you have a show that's presenting itself as very serious, yet you can read between the lines and get an idea that there is probably a casting director or I should say a, a director or, you know, someone behind the scenes who's telling the people on the camera, okay, you have to do that again. You got to do that again. You got to do that again. And after a right. while, you can see that it's more force than natural. Yep. <laughs> sounds like you've experienced that.
2: <laughs> I mean, I haven't you like,
1: oh yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's pretty, pretty typical. And the thing is sometimes, sometimes when they have you, can you do it again? Can you do it again? You mm-hmm. know, it's because you did it great the first time and they didn't catch it.
1: Right, right. Right.
2: But, but yeah, I mean, um, so it is, it is, I think it's a responsibility of scientists and anyone passionate about something that they're willing to be correct about. Um, you know, not passionate to the point where they're close-minded, but passionate to the point where about the right things, about learning, about expanding their knowledge, as well as the people watching. Um, you know, like, I just feel like it's a responsibility of everything, of everyone to share what they know. You know, 0.1% of the world's population is scientists. If they're not sharing what they know, then how how are we supposed to advance?
1: Yeah. You know? And there's an expression, um, when an elderly person dies, a library closes forever.
2: Right. It's it's so true. And, and so much of this isn't written down. I mean, I know I with science, I get, um, I'm nervous. I'm nervous to, to be a first author on publications because i cause you have a whole critic, uh, board that like tries to tear your work down and mm-hmm. it's intimidating. And even when it, it does publish, no one's reading it, you know, like, so, so doing this, these videos and being part of, of mainstream media really helps in that respect, you know,
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny because I think the further you get in academia, the more potential there is to experience, uh, imposter syndrome, you know, where you feel like there's going to be someone sitting in the back of the room that's going to stand up maybe all dramatically with a, you know, a hat on and a long trench coat and say, you're a fraud, you know? Um, Right. and, And I don't know what it is about that phenomenon, but it feels like the further you get, you're almost always worried that someone's going to call you out until you realize, okay, you've done all your due diligence, you've done all your, your, the legwork and you 100% believe in the work that you've done because it's undeniable it's true.
2: Well, yeah. I I mean, it's because the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. Correct. Uh, So, so as we advance and we learn and, and I learned this the hard way. I was an expert during the Florida water crisis Mm -hmm. and I was an expert in Florida red tide, but, but through like, I was like the only expert that was willing to go on social media and try to educate the public, which it was a heated public. It was the most difficult thing that, that I ever did career wise. Um, Let's talk,
1: let's talk about that for a second. I want to keep you going on this. So for those that aren't listening and who might be more inland listeners in continental us, the flyover States, can you talk about what the red tide is and how it affects seafood and shellfish and things like that?
2: Oh yeah. So there are things called red tide all over the world, but Florida red tide is specific or endemic to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, now, o- over millennia, we've gotten you know, 70% of our oxygen from from phytoplankton. Cyanobacteria, the first uh, start freshwater species, I believe, was the start of the Great Oxidation Event. Um, but but some of those species, out of the thousands, are actually toxic, meaning that they release a toxin that can harm aquatic life. Uh, Florida Red Tide, the species Karenia brevis, is one of those species in the Gulf of Mexico. But what makes it so unique is not only that it releases the toxin that affects aquatic life, but it can also aerosolize, meaning that the toxin, uh, it's hydrophobic, meaning it hates water. So it sits on top of bubbles, sea seafoam. Uh, anytime waves crash, those bubbles break and the toxin is released into the air. Sticks onto sea salt particles, moves on shore with winds, and so it causes people to cough and sneeze, itchy eyes, maybe even itchy skin if you're in the water. Uh, but for those with asthma or COPD, this can be really serious. Um, and then, like you were saying with the seafood, uh, it does it does get uptaken by by shellfish, um, which humans can have uh, toxic shellfish poisoning if they ingest that. Um, but it does impact uh, everything from, from sharks, turtles, manatees, uh, and, and other fish, uh, and it impacts them all in different ways.
1: One of my acquaintances that I I know through just various trade shows and I've, I've know him through the survival circle is Dave McIntyre. He's one of the first guys to win that show alone on the history channel. Yeah. And while he was on that show in British Columbia, um, I believe they're in Northern British Columbia, like, uh, North Vancouver, they, uh, they had red tide. And he said it was one of the, (laughs) like a a huge kick in the pants because right outside of where he was camping, there's all these shellfish and there's, there's, he could have easily had meals after meals after meals, but he also was told by the medical experts and the scientific experts over there, listen, if you eat that, you were probably gonna have to pull you from the show. So you can imagine the frustration of, of, you know, wanting to win the half million dollars or million, whatever it is, and then finding out, okay, you're not going to have it as easy because by the way, the stuff that were dangling in front of your face, you know, like a carrot or in this case, uh, mussels and clams could potentially kill you. Um, so I can imagine the fallout from those in Florida who are relying on fishing industries, hearing you saying, Hey, you can't do X, Y, and Z. I mean, you must've had it pretty rough.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it really did crush economy, tourism. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the death threats I got were from mostly, uh, people that own bait shops. Yeah. The, the public kind of turned on scientists somehow mm-hmm. Like it, it's our fault. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you say that about Vancouver different species, but, but yeah, these toxic algae blooms happen all over the world. Um, But if you uh, if you read the first indication of Florida Red Tide was from a scripture written in the 1500s by Spanish explorers that came over to the Gulf of Mexico. And if you actually read the story, it was hilarious. One part because they ended up having to go naked into a boat. They lost their clothes somehow, but then they ate shellfish. Um, and, and that shellfish was toxic and that was our first anecdotal evidence of Florida red tide being here back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of wow. years. Uh, and then it was identified in the 1800s. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, it, these blooms, um, they start offshore at the ocean bottom, come closer to shore, but when they get close enough to shore, they can use surface water nutrients uh, from fertilizers, uh, sewage, uh, septic, all of that to, to kind of feed or exacerbate and prolong these blooms. And as urbanization is increasing, population is increasing, and the amount of of uh, stuff, nutrients or things that feed these blooms going into our coastal waters in, in addition to the water itself is increasing because of that urbanization. Um, we're having these blooms that are that are extremely intense. Um, so so it's uh, it's it, there have been years where it's been absolutely devastating making international news. and that's what happened in 2018 and nineteen. Um, and then this past year or this year in 2021, we had that uh, bloom in Tampa Bay that made national news because it, it followed a wastewater, um, a wastewater break from a phosphate mine, and then a hurricane event actually pushed the bloom into an enclosed uh, bay, um, and it was it was it hasn't been that bad since the 1970s. Wow,
1: I had spoken recently to someone who was working on stocking like a small pond on their property. And at the same time, they also didn't want to let it be known that that pond, you know, contains various fish that they were going to, you know, harvest in, you know, worst case scenario, but they also were saying how they wanted to keep the grounds clean and they wanted to keep the grass well maintained. So they couldn't understand why there was so much lily pad growth. And then they were speaking to someone who was a small pond management pro. And they said, if you're using fertilizer for the grass and that leaches into the water, It's going to fertilize the vegetation in the water and everything is going to, you know, go through the, you know, go through this growth spurt. And, you know, I don't think people realize or it might just be an afterthought like, okay, that makes sense. You know, (laughs) well, all
0: right, guys, one more time, we're going to stop the podcast and talk to you about one of our sponsors. And the sponsor is element element is a drink mix. That's taken over the world. With Element, you can get those valuable electrolytes back after fasting, working out. It'll help you fight off that keto flu, carb cravings, and kickstart your day in the morning to help you fight off that late morning grogginess that we get. I know I suffer from it, Uh, it's horrible, but this stuff actually helps. Element has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, or coloring. Many professional athletes in leagues like the NBA, NFL are starting to use Element. Uh, including teams from, uh, team USA, the Olympic team, the weightlifting team, uh, a couple of seal teams and some other tactical teams from our country's finest element is offering the Fieldcraft survival podcast listeners, a special opportunity to try element for free using our link down in the show notes. Element will send you a sample pack that includes eight packets of assorted flavors. All you have to do is pay the shipping, which in the U S is probably around $5 or something. So don't miss this offer, guys. It's totally risk-free. And if you do end up buying some and changing your mind, you can return it. No questions asked. Element is really proud to, to offer you guys the no BS customer service, which is so nice, especially in the world of automation. A company that has customer service right is much appreciated. So we've tried Element here in the office. We love it. We think you guys should try it too. And we promise you guys that it's worth checking out.
1: what what are some of the ways i mean what are some of the ways that we can minimize the impact i know you recently posted about how a lot of our food has like what 40% waste production you know we we don't uh we don't utilize like 40% of what we grow or i don't forgot right. what the exact figure was but what are some of yeah. the ways that like the listeners could apply you know sustainable actions or sustainable uh, philosophy or concepts to say like their properties
2: yeah, I mean that's really where it starts because regulations waiting for regulations to change um, is I mean it's just going to be too late. Uh, so what you can do at your home right now is retrofit it. You know, make sure you use native plant species. Grass, grass is the world's largest crop. Like really think about that. It produces absolutely nothing. So us bringing you know non-native grass or even native and and making it grow and putting fertilizer and all this stuff to produce absolutely nothing is a waste of resources um in addition to that a lot of these places like in florida native plant species are beautiful like let it let it be beautiful um other things that you can do. Well, right now, when it rains, the rain hits your roof, goes down your your gutter, and down your driveway into a storm sewer into a natural water body. In most places, some places it goes to a wastewater treatment plant. Regardless, um, if you can disconnect that impervious surface or what water can't penetrate through, by you know, water hits your roof, goes down your your gutter into a cistern, which is basically a, a rain barrel, a big thing that holds water, and then it can be timed release into a rain garden or an infiltration trench or something that allows water to, to do what it did before you built your house there. And so you can have that physical, chemical, and biologic breakdown of pollutants uh, before that water gets to your natural water bodies. Um, those, are, those are things that you can do right now, and it increases the aesthetics of your of your home as well
1: what what people view as oh this is a great lawn you know and it's all this grass that has no nutritional value i mean before as you mentioned all this grass was imported like bermuda grass and whatnot i mean we had plantain sheep sorrel clover dandelion you know i mean you name it all these wild edibles, you know, that people come to us, you know, here at Fieldcraft and they're like, Hey, can you show us wild edibles? And I'm like, Go in your backyard. I guarantee you're gonna find edible and medicinal plants in your garden that you probably are trying to pull out because you're calling them weeds. Right.
2: Because you think they're weeds.
1: Right, right. So I think I think that's just part of it is just changing the the perspective, right? Changing the way that people view things. And, you know, what might necessarily not look so pretty might be very functional. Um, but right. I, I think that's a cultural change that. I mean it's going to take years.
2: Right. And the thing is, I mean beauty is really our perception, right? Um so if we change that perception, uh we can change what is what is beautiful. I mean it, to me when I see a uh, you know grass on a lawn, I see oh my gosh, you know this this microbial uh population is is not natural it's not native you know what I mean like like everything like this isn't this isn't good habitat for the native species you know I don't know I just because of what I know I see it differently and if we can share that information with the general public especially homeowners associations um, and show them a different kind of beauty I think that we can really really make a difference but we need people to come together on it
1: yeah, I agree. And I think you need to have, <clears throat> you need to, I mean, you got to hit it from multiple levels. You can't just, you can't just go community based. You almost have to go top down. Uh, you have to, you know, change it in, in a lot of different ways or else it just won't stick. But, uh, right. you know, right. something, something I want to ask you about is I know that you've been following, um, and I voted by the way, you were following the first all civilian, uh, trip to outer space. Yes. And yeah. it's funny cause you know, you're, you're, the large body of your work has to deal with water and the seas and the oceans, which a lot of people would say is like really our final frontier on this planet. But now we're looking at another frontier, which is outer space. What's the fascination with outer space?
2: Well, you know, I was always one of those people that said, why earth mm-hmm. or why space when we have earth, why are we putting all this money in space research when we have so many problems here on earth? Uh, but as I've grown and, and gotten more experience. I don't say that at all because I, I see all everything differently now. Uh, I had NASA approach me about working on an aquaponic system for space travel with them. And I was like, all right, like, why? And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, this primary water treatment was inspired by third world countries needing safe drinking water. And this secondary treatment was inspired by, you know, the Indian River Lacoon that is plagued by harmful algae. That is, you know, and we know now after after a 10 year change regime shift ecologically, you know, has resulted in the biggest manatee fatality event uh, that we've ever seen nine hundred Uh, manatees dead this year because of the loss of seagrass um i was like wait a second so so this this is inspired by earth and he's like yeah he's like we're we're developing a system to clean wastewater where there's you know no waste we don't we don't have that luxury in space i was like all right so we're using space money for earth so basically how i see space research now is that it breaks the boundaries of sustainability here on Earth. Creating completely sustainable systems where we can't waste will will get us ahead of the needs right now because so, so many times on Earth, we are just putting band-aids on problems when it's too late. Uh, this, you know, using using this space research to create these systems that I know that we're going to need. We need them now, but you know, we're not we're not doing it because we're not pushed to will prepare us for the future. Um, And and that's why I'm all about space research. You know, NOAA, we're in charge of everything from the bottom of the ocean to the sun. That's that's a lot. We have more satellites than NASA does because most of our information from Earth does come from space. So um, so, you know, you think that that Earth and space are two different things, but they're very much connected. I mean, these systems are just microcosms of a bigger system. Uh, and so that's what that's what Earth really is. And understanding our universe will help us understand how we can sustain Earth.
1: Yeah, it seems like every election cycle, you know, folks are always asking about, you know, what's the future of the space program and this and that. And inevitably, there's going to be someone in the room who's going to say something along the lines of, why are we wasting all that money on outer space? To which I'm usually, you know, I'm never one to uh, to hide my opinion, and I'll just say, in kind of a snarky way, I'll be like, "Well, you realize that the microwave that you just heated up your whatever in came from the space your program from years ago. The yep. cell phone, right? You know, mylar uh, mylar blankets, you know, that you use for your backpacking trip or your freeze dried food, you know. So I, I think people don't realize that no matter no matter how you view it you can't deny that a lot of the advancements that we take advantage of every single day here on earth, I mean, they come from scientific research. Um, right? And you know, there's an awesome book that I read. It was called uh, Packing for Mars. I don't know if you've read that one, but Packing for Mars Ooh. Um, and wait, I'm trying to think, the roach. I did just
2: apply, apply to be on that, that Mars habitat.
1: Oh, no kidding.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I don't know if I'm going to the moon. Um, with their moon. So um, mm-hmm. just in case I figured why not be on Mars?
1: <laughs> well, damn, that's gotta be a, a long trip. Um, that the whole idea of packing for Mars um, and the author's name I remembered is Roach. I'll never forget it because I remember it was an insect. So uh, <laughs> the, na- the author's name is Roach and the author presented the idea that, you know, if we're packing for Mars, you know, we have to look at the way that we are packing—not just what we're packing, but how we're packing. And believe it or not, you would actually be an ideal candidate because if there was the concept of like deep hibernation, women would be more uh, capable of surviving that than men, just based on you know body fat ratios and where the fat is carried uh, versus men. And on top of that, men who are you know biologically, you know, cross-culturally larger than women. Eat more, meaning it would cost more in fuel and whatnot. So right. the author presented a lot of really interesting points about you know packing for Mars, and I was like, wow, that makes me kind of rethink. Who I'd want with me in a survival situation. (laughs) You know, as as a guy who, you know, makes a living off of teaching people preparedness, maybe the right person to have with you is just a a tribe of, you know, just badass women because they want to eat as much, you know? But um I don't know. That's
2: so interesting. And you know, you know, you as a survivalist, you are the ultimate environmentalist.
1: Don't give me a big head here. Um (laughs) you know, we uh
2: it's the truth. If everybody knew survival skills, Mm -hmm. you that our society would realize what we need and what we don't.
1: And, you know, and I agree with that. I'll, I'll take it back. Um, I will give myself a little bit of a big head here, you know, from the bushcraft perspective, you know, that was really how I was raised. It was really like what my father taught me and what we did at the previous school that I used to work for. And it's the idea that, you know, you want to do more with less and you want right. to, you know, make sure that you leave the environment in a way that where it can kind of regrow. So if you have like a stand of five trees and you do need to harvest something, you leave, you know, three of them behind. Right. And then that way, you know, if one of them fails, you still have two more backups. Right. And it's not like you're clear cutting. It's not like you are, you know, denuding the forest of anything, any of the resources. So. In some, in some respects, yes, but there are a lot of jokers that are out there that just kind of wantonly destroy and, you know, next thing you know, the habitat is gone. So, you know, I would Aww. say that folks in, you know, the, in the right set of mind and with the right practices, yes, they do kind of practice that, you know, sustainability in the great outdoors, but there are a lot of folks that, that don't care, you know, and, you know, it's something that uh, we're trying to reverse. We're trying to trying to work on right now. Well, um,
2: the only thing you can do is, you know, lead by example and, and share what you've learned and, and why you do what you do.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're trying here. Um, what's your current workload like, like what, what does your average day look like and what are the current projects that you're on?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you asked me this a year ago when I was at Mount Marine Laboratory, it would be a completely different answer than it is now. Uh, a year ago, I, I had you know, nine interns, four employees uh, working on, you know, 10 projects at a time, um, you know, in all different from water treatment to to using bivalves to remove lead-tide toxins to developing apps and technologies to alert the public of environmental hazards, all of that stuff uh, when I was a program manager of research over at Moat. Uh, But now I am uh, the coastal modeling portfolio manager at the National Ocean Service within NOAA. And my position is to work with other line offices, academia, industry, to um, build a modeling system so that we better understand threats that our coastal communities and beyond face with a changing climate Um, and to give that to to give that information to uh, the public, local governments uh, operationally, meaning in real time to allow them to make to make decisions that they need to make on a regular basis, whether it's anything from microalgae all the way to storm surge and everything in between.
1: Wow. I mean, I, I think your work obviously kind of pulls at the emotional strings of a lot of Americans because we don't have to worry so much about some of the problems that or experience in like third world countries. But I mean, do you have a counterpart in like India or China or these, you know, these very large developing countries that obviously just I mean, we've seen the, the footage, we've seen the photos, we've seen the evidence. I mean, they don't seem to care as much as as Americans. I mean, is there someone yeah. that you you interact with on a regular basis? And, and what is that discussion like?
2: Yeah. I mean, I have, I have friends that are working overseas and then of course, you know, we're at at NOAA, we're, we're involved with the UN and, and these international relationships, uh, towards sustainability and preserving our, the health of our oceans. Um, I think that you realize, um, when your priority is survival or just getting clean water or enough food for your family uh sustainability isn't really a, it, it gets put on the back burner um i think that that it's really it's tough in that respect to get priorities to change when when people just are trying to survive day, day to day um but but uh, it, it, uh you know what you see these videos of all this waste in, in rivers in India or China. And then you look at you look at the source of that waste. And then um, you realize that it comes from us a lot of the times, especially with electronics. Um, we were for a long time, and now now I know China's not taking our recycling, but um still a lot of our waste is brought to third world countries for them to deal with, you know, kind of uh, not in my backyard, out of sight, out of mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I think that a lot of us in, in America don't, don't really realize that, that we're part of their problem. And just because they, you know, they're doing what they need to do for, for money, you know, like, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough when you start to, think globally. And, and what we can do is take the countries that do have the resources to push the entire globe forward as much as they can, um, and, and get them to realize their responsibility and, and figure out a plan for those other places, for those populations that are low income.
1: When I taught a, uh, AP human geography course uh, a couple of years back, um, one of the things that always got brought up in the class was how is it possible to wrap your, your mind around billions of people in the world, billions of locations, uh, you know, all these different stories of people. And one of the the models that we used as a, as a teaching point was imagine the world as a village of a hundred people. And it's a common kind of model that's been, you know, reprinted and reused. And it's, it's seen it's different iterations over the years, but they talk about how in that model, how few people actually have access to technology out of a hundred people. Right, and how few people would be on the verge of death, how few people would be would be born, and this and that. Um, and when you look at it in terms of a hundred people, it gives you an idea of the severity and the urgency of some of the you know the issues around the globe, where you're not dealing with a number like four hundred fifty nine million seven hundred eighty seven thousand. You know, like you're right. you're dealing with forty nine people, right? Which is easier to grasp. Um, right. I, I think it's very difficult for a lot of folks. Because, you know, we, we live in our world. We, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I look at my phone all the time and I kind of focus on my problems, but I've got to, you know, look outside of just my immediate community and look at what's going on statewide, nationwide, globally, and so on. Um, now, <laughs> from a real heavy topic to something a little bit lighter, because I feel like, you know, we can't, end on, on, on a, on a, you know, dark, dark tone here. I heard you recently got a a violation for something on TikTok? Were you were you threatening someone?
2: <laughs> no, it was my it was my dust explosion video.
1: Oh, the the lycopodium.
2: Like yeah, it was just, like, just like a just lycopodium powder moss force, just throwing it on a flame and watching the flame burst open, or burst up, and and it, you know, like that's that's it. It's I mean, I do it with kids.
1: Yeah. What we used to do up at the old survival school is we would have people hold lighters in front of those little lycopodiums and you'd flick them and they would, they would flash and people uh-huh. don't realize that that was actually used in like the old Western photography. When there was a person holding up a, a flash pen, that's the powder that was in it. Um,
2: that's so funny.
1: Yeah. So I was just curious about that because, you know, you don't seem like someone who would be very threatening or intimidating or, you know, use no. violence in your work, but you know, for some reason, TikTok just, they got the wrong idea.
2: Right, right. It's so funny. Um, but I have a friend that tags sharks and he gets he gets his stuff taken down all the time too. That's not taken down on Instagram.
1: When you're saying tagging sharks, you're talking about like recording them, like putting like a monitor on them? Or are you saying yeah, like... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Second kind of lighthearted question. I know that you are a... Uh, this is from your IMDB, which I don't know if... You know that you have one? Yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: Yes, I know that I have okay. one, and I, I did not start it. Okay. So anything that's on there, I don't know.
1: All right. Well, according to your IMDb, it says that you were very active with soccer, lacrosse, ice hockey, and softball. If you had to give up one of those and never play it again, never watch it again, which would it be?
2: Never play it again and never watch it again. Oh, that's that's a really tough one. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, there are two different questions. I I think I could do without watching softball ever again. And, uh, I think that it's better for everyone. If I don't play ice hockey ever again, I played on a boy's team. Like I was only, you know, me and another girl were the only two girls in the entire league, uh, in high school playing ice hockey, but I was not good at it.
1: <laughs> okay. And in I, mean, Buffalo, New York, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. yes. crazy amounts of snowfall.
2: I mean, I was good enough to play, but not, not good. You know, not like I, I went to college to play lacrosse.
1: Mm-hmm. So I qu- can't
2: can't let that one go.
1: Okay. Another question. Um, this is more of a serious one, but I usually like to ask, you know, the, the guests on here, how to get folks to their level. So I know that there are many young women who might be listening and they might be interested in pursuing a career in science and math fields, but they might find resistance or hesitation to do so. How do you encourage or how can you encourage young women to get into the fields like you're in?
2: yeah i think that a lot of it because i was really turned out i never wanted engineering because it just seemed so boring you look at a lockheed martin like office space and you're like cubicles and computers no thank you um but that's why i run uh, a kids camp called mission tampa bay to show kids that there's there's more to engineering than sitting in front of a computer it's actually like fun and exciting and and, yeah, it's kind of cool to be, you know, to be a female uh, in these fields because you bring a perspective that that the the men don't have. Um, and that's why I'm very much for I mean, it's scientifically proven that diverse teams uh, perform better. Uh, so so getting getting girls involved in and in making them realize that they are capable more than capable um is really important now i was a I, I taught seventh grade that was where my outside funding came from a, it was a fellowship called spice it was nf nsf fellowship where i taught seventh grade science two two full days a week and i saw seventh grade they always say is that critical time to get girls involved in stem fields: science technology engineering and math um and and i and i saw it firsthand in the beginning of the year it was the the girls knew everything they were they were the ones that the boys were copying homework from and then something happened where their social um perspective changed they started getting really involved in in boys and started with the gossip and started you know like cuz they mature earlier so there you know it's just it's just how it is females mature earlier and look for that next stage in life earlier than men do or boys do and and i saw that that's when i lost a lot of the students was that second half of the year and and that's just my perspective this is not i'm not a social scientist um or a sociologist i, I it's just what i saw and and i think really getting kids attention and keeping it um, in that seventh, eighth grade time period is really essential and having good teachers will make a huge impact. Good teachers that have the energy to do hands on experiments and, and do a diversity of things, not just the Rube Goldberg physics stuff, but also get them out into the field. Show them that environmental engineering is all about ecology and, and water and ecosystem health and, and worldwide things that that is exciting to any kid. Um, and then, of course, space, I think, is really grabbing the attention of a lot of young girls because there's so many great role models uh, that are astronauts now. Um, but but I think that there's there's definitely ways we just have to, you know, stick with it and get them to stick with it despite obstacles that come up, um, uh, you know, with with getting an engineering degree.
1: And, and that's all fantastic. I couldn't have answered that better. And I'll just simply add it is that there are so many scholarships that are available at the high school level for young women in particular to pursue scientific degrees. And that's really the role of the guidance counselor. So if there's any listeners that are out there that are like, hey, I want to get my kid into this science program or into this engineering program or whatever, but you know maybe I can get them over here because it's, it's less expensive. Don't relent. If anything, go after the guidance counselor and say, listen, I know that there are these scholarships available. How can I get my kid to?" right? And, and pursue it there. Um, Right. where can people find you? I mean, I know, obviously I mentioned, you know, some of the television shows and Instagram, but I'll let you kind of give your contact info in terms of social media or how people can reach you or follow you.
2: So I, uh, inspector planet, it's, uh, it's captain planet and inspector gadget, because we can't have true sustainability with, with all the changes that that are occurring in entropy and all that. Um, so the only way that we can strive for true sustainability is through innovation. And so that's the combination of those two make Inspector Planet. So InspectorPlanet.com, um, I'm still, you know, my website is still a work in progress, but you can go there, you can sign up uh, to be part of the team. Uh, and uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Inspector Planet uh, on Facebook, it's slash Inspector Planet or Dr. Tracy Funara, um, LinkedIn. And uh, you can you can always send me an email through my website at inspectorplanetteam.gmail.com.
1: Awesome. And is there anything that you want to add? Last thing that we haven't covered, maybe something that people normally don't ask you, or maybe things that people should know about you that you just want to get out there is there anything that that uh you'd like to add or or leave with yeah
2: i mean you know me and my my friend from mythbusters we started a comic book called seekers of science and and i always forget to to share that seekersofscience.com or you can get it from amazon but all of the proceeds we have a volume out four issues um and it's basically like our real life um it's it's what i want my life to be you know go out find environmental problems solve them through with principles of science and and we can do that in 26 pages though in real life it's it's a lot harder um, and i always say you know a science you're you're losing 99 of the time but it's that one percent that you could change the world and that's why we do it um, but yeah so Se- seekers of science comic book uh, all proceeds go to um giving more free copies to underserved communities
1: Wow, that's fantastic. It's it's obvious that you're passionate about what you do. It's obvious that you are, you know, getting your hands in a lot of different different areas of of changing the world, whether it's in person or as you mentioned, you know, on television or in this comic book now. And I just appreciate your your time and everything that you shared with us here on the the Fieldcraft podcast. So Thank you so much
2: much for having me. You're amazing.
1: (laughs) So guys, uh, that is Dr. Tracy Finara. Uh, Please follow her. Please get your kids involved in the science fields. And until next time, I'm Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival. Thank you so much.